You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 12th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, US and UK forces begin airstrikes against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen. We'll bring you the latest and the reaction from around the world. Also on today's programme, we recap day one and look ahead to the second day at the International Court of Justice, as it here claims that Israel is carrying out genocide in Gaza. We'll recap a week in US politics, complete with its customary court case, involving Donald Trump. This is an out-of-control attorney general. She's totally out of control. These loans were all good. The banks were extremely happy with me. They still are. We built a great company. And... Hi, I'm Matt Wolf, and I'll be reporting from New York on goings-on on and off Broadway, including Stephen Sondheim, Sarah Paulson, and lots of other exciting names. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. A quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Tens of thousands of people have demonstrated in Poland against the arrest and imprisonment of two MPs. Russia's former president has warned that the use of any arms supplied by the US and allies to Ukraine to carry out attacks on missile launch sites inside Russia will risk a nuclear response from Moscow. And North Korea is to allow its first tourists into the country for four years. A group from Russia is expected to visit. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, US and UK forces have begun airstrikes against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen. Just after midnight UK time, strikes were reported on the capital Sana'a and on Hudaya, the Houthi Red Sea port stronghold. The American-led strikes came in response to Houthi ta- attacks against commercial shipping in the Red Sea. It's immediately raised fears of a deeper regional conflict. Well, I'm joined on the line by Iona Craig, a journalist who specialises in the Arabian Peninsula and by Bill Law, Middle East analyst and the editor of Arab Digest. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Iona, if I may begin with you, because your speciality is in is Yemen. What are you hearing from the people who you know out there? Um, it's been a busy night, to be honest with you. Um, the airstrike started at around 2.30am local time. And I think the last contact I got was about 6 a.m. local time to hear to say that there's still explosions going on. So I think the worst hit place um, was Hodeida. Um, that was where the airstrikes and, and explosions seemed to continue until the early hours of this morning, Yemen local time. I think more broadly, there were strikes from, uh, sorry, strikes in Sana'a, the capital, Sada, which is the Houthi stronghold in the north. Hadeda on the western Red Sea coast, uh, Tyres as well, which is on, on in, the, in the west of, of Yemen, and Bamar, which is south of Sana'a, and as far north, uh, which is northeast is, is, uh, of Sana'a, is Al Jal. So there were across many governorates. Um, the Houthis were responding as well. Certainly, the people I was talking was talking to in in Hadeda heard outgoing missiles. Going, being launched from Hadeda at around the same time the airstrike started at 2.30 in the morning. Um, so, yes, I think particularly in Hadeda it was very active for many hours. I think across the rest of the country it was a kind of 
initial barrage of strikes um, that lasted around an hour. Um, but whereas there were counterattacks from the Houthis being launched from the west coast um, in and around the city of Hodeida and, and just a bit further north in the governorate. And staying with you, Iona, the, the locations that you have described, would they be natural targets for people trying to single out Houthi rebels? Um, yes, there are certainly areas where there are military bases or um, ballistic missile launch sites. So in Sanaa, it appears they targeted excuse me, um, the Air Force Base, which is next to or part of the airport, really, in Sana'a, the international airport. Um, it's known that the Houthis have launch sites in al Jauf, but particularly on the western coast, uh, in and around Hodeida, um, they have the 5th um, Military Regional Command, which is their naval base area as well in Hodeida. So, yes, that would, it would seem that it's a, it, 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 those are obvious places to hit at the moment. Obviously, the Houthis control a lot of territory and have a, 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 what would be considered probably military targets across large parts of, of northwest Yemen. But it, they were all in areas under the control of the Houthis. Um, except for possibly in tyres, it may have overlapped in some of the areas that are held by the internationally recognised government just because a lot of tyres is in contested territory. Bill, when this attack came, it, it, it has felt like a rapid escalation, almost as a surprise. But given the, the, the number of attacks that have been taking place on commercial ships in the Red Sea and the fact that the UN Security Council on Wednesday demanded Yemen Houthis immediately end these attacks... Is there a sense that the US and the UK and its allies had been boxed into a corner here and had to act? Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Uh, as you say, the Houthis, uh, despite uh, demands that they cease these attacks, um, just kept right on carrying out the attacks. And I think that the Americans and, and us really felt that we had to respond. And, and the response, as you only said, has been... Uh, pretty significant. And if indeed it is ongoing, then that, you know, does raise the stakes just that much. I mean, there was some thinking that uh, there would be a targeted, a, a very targeted hit, and then and then uh, that would uh, send the message to the Houthis, okay, back off. But but it seems that this has been a pretty major assault on, on Houthi um, military uh, facilities. And that, again, raises the stakes because the Houthis are not the sort of uh, foes that back off. Uh, they respond uh, very significantly to challenges. They, they certainly did uh, with the Saudis. And uh, the fact is the Saudis are very nervous about what is happening right now. They are calling for restraint. And I think the danger is that this will escalate, that it will draw in more players, um, which, again, raises the stakes, I think, pretty significantly. Um, tell us a little bit more about the, the way that the Houthis would respond to this. Um, I know we have had sort of reports and reactions from uh, several members of, of the Houthis, including this. And with that, we are more determined to continue and target ships linked to Israel, and we will not back down from that. And not backing down, Iona, um, I think some commentary last night suggested that um, not only do the Houthis want to be part of the Israel-Hamas conflict, which is arguably where all this is stemming from, but also they quite like threats. 
Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, they were founded as a fighting force, really, or grew out um, of one anyway, certainly in Yemen. I think they will relish this in many respects. Um, their, their kind of stance against Israel and, and against America is widely popular. And, and this, these attacks by the U.S. really kind of underline and, uh, well, reinforce their, their kind of narrative, which is very anti-American and anti-Western and, and anti-Israeli. I think inside Yemen, there is a huge concern that it will reignite the conflict there, which has been quiet since March 2022, since the Saudis stopped launching airstrikes against them and, uh, and brokered a ceasefire. Uh, and things have, there have been some clashes, but it's been relatively quiet in Yemen with the hope of a political deal emerging. But I think that the Houthis have been able to gain new recruits because of this activity in the Red Sea. It's really emboldened them. They've recruited tens of thousands of new fighters, and they've put, put many of those fighters in um, and around the, the city of, of Marib, which is controlled by the internationally recognized government. And I think there's a lot of concern in Yemen after tonight that one of the reactions by the Houthis may be to reignite the conflict internally within Yemen, as well as carrying out these kind of external attacks. Um, and certainly for Yemenis, that's what they're really afraid of this morning. And I was talking to people who are now going to go out to, to kind of collect food and fuel in anticipation of the conflict reigniting, not just on one front, but potentially multiple fronts at the same time. Um, uh, and, and this is also obviously an option to the Houthis, as well as attacking vessels, perhaps, you know, launching missiles further afield um, is what may happen internally in Yemen as a result of this as well. But let's talk about the relationship between the Houthis and Iran. They are allies of Iran. They're not proxies. But at the same time, they have no shortage of weapons, which is what's been enabling them to carry out these attacks in the in the Red Sea. And overnight, we've had the reaction from the Iranian foreign minister um, condemning the strike, saying it's a, it's a violation of Yemen's sovereignty, territorial integrity and a violation of international laws. How do the nations which have participated in these attacks on the Houthis ensure that what they have done is not seen as a direct attack on Iran? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Uh, one of the, um, I think, fundamental strategic mistakes is the assumption that's made by politicians and, and, and leaders here in the West that Iran is the puppet master. It, it pulls the strings and, and the Houthis, Hezbollah, they simply respond to what Tehran is telling them to do. That is not the case. When the war in Yemen broke out back in, in 2015, the, uh, the reason Saudis came in and, and the Emiratis was because the Houthis decided to push south to Aden. And uh, Iran said, don't do it. The Houthis went ahead and did it. I think the, the risk of, of, of this developing into something bigger is, is actually driven higher if we make the assumption that Iran is simply pulling the strings and Iran is the puppet master. The Houthis are very much their own players in this. Yes, the Iranians are supplying them with the weaponry, but the Houthis are not uh, uh, simply doing what Tehran says. And I think we need to be very careful about how we play the next few hours and next few days out. And I think rhetoric that simply says that Iran is the one that's, that, 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 that's causing these attacks in the Red Sea, that's a mistake. The, uh, the, the Houthis have come out very strongly, more strongly than any outside players, saying these attacks are about what is happening in Gaza. These attacks are in support of Hamas. Iran hasn't come out ne as nearly as strongly as the Houthis have. So I think we need to be careful here. And I think there is 
you know, that is very much where the escalation could build unless we're cautious. But talking about escalation, Iona, we have to go back to the fact that this is a product or a result of what happened beginning on the 7th of October with Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's subsequent response on Gaza. And it was just yesterday that the US Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken was heading back to the US from the Middle East where he'd been trying to stop overspill, that he'd trying to stop the Israel-Hamas threat from spreading into a wider Middle East conflict. And then we saw what happened last night. Where does that leave that hope? I I would say that it had already um, been a wider conflict. It may may not have... um, escalated in the way that everybody had been warning about. But it had already become wider because of these attacks in the Red Sea. There had been attacks even as far um, as the Indian coast by Iran as well. There had been these very suspicious, let's put it that way, attacks by Somali privateers. They're not the the pirates that we saw in in the Indian Ocean and in the Arabian Sea before 2017. They were something entirely different, which appeared also to be connected to the Houthi attacks um, and, and what Iran was up to as well. So I think we'd already seen an expansion, but it was happening at sea. And so we just weren't watching it in the same way that we would be, say, you know, the kind of spillover on the the Lebanese Israeli border. I I think what what's just been said is absolutely right, that that the escalation risk here is very high and the Houthis have never de-escalated in their history of, of, of more than 20 years now. And they were quite willingly, I think, um, escalate in a way that that, um, Iran may be much more nervous about doing so. I I think you have to also, you know, remember that the Houthis have been at war since 2014. So escalation to them looks very different to what it looks like to us in respect that that there's, you could argue there's not much to escalate beyond when you're already at war, you've already been blockaded, you've already been sanctioned. Um, and I think that they will relish taking this on um, and, and any counterattacks against the U.S. Uh, and, and as well British vessels in the Red Sea. And I, I don't think they will hesitate on that at all, really, um, in a way that the, the West and certainly Washington would be very nervous about an escalation. I don't think the Houthis are at all. Um, Bill, where does the cool head and the calming voice come from? There's always there. There has already been words from Saudi Arabia saying we we must keep a cool head on this one. Will that have any effect? Well, I think uh, I, I think it needs to. I think the Saudis are are um, putting that out very publicly, very clearly. I expect that the Emiratis uh, will also be uh, speaking about this. And, and and Qatar. I mean, those countries in the Gulf that are going to be most directly affected are the ones that are going to say, we've got to calm this down. Uh, We're not hearing that sort of uh, rhetoric, certainly here in the UK, uh, not yet in in Washington. But but really, I do think that this uh, situation needs the calm voices. And and, and I think that will come primarily from the Saudis uh, and, and, and other players in the region. And we mustn't forget also that the Israelis will want to ramp things up, and, and that, that is a risk as well. Even as you said, Blinken is, is urging restraint. The Israelis are showing they themselves, rather like the Houthis, have no interest in restraint. Uh, this all adds to the risks that, uh, that we, we are all facing. Um, finally, Iona, the, the 
Houthis, a tribal mountain militia. Should the likes of the US and UK be launching attacks on a tribal mountain militia, given their track record? Um, well, I think they were very much a, a tribal militia back in the early 2000s and even up to 2014 when they were helped by the, the forces of the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, to take control in Sana'a. But I think they've morphed into something completely different um, as a result of this support from Iran. So I think because the weaponry that they've got, the capabilities they've now got with um, with these mid-range ballistic missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, this makes them a much more dangerous and forceful um, entity in the region now. Uh, and, I, and I think this is, you know, really where their power comes from is very much from Iran. And uh, although they are not a proxy of Iran, and this is what's, you know, led them to essentially take control of the Red Sea and will mean they're a continuing threat um, which we've kind of really had a, a black spot or a, a blind spot for since the early 2000s, but certainly since 2014, really, when um, the international community believed that they could do a deal with the Houthis in, 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 in the aftermath and taking the capital sonar and then did, did do a deal with them and they thought the Houthis would stick to that. Stick to that. But they escalated then. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, the Houthis have a, a long history of escalation upon escalation. And this is the real danger now. Iona Craig and Bill Law, thank you both for joining me on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's hear an update now on what happened yesterday at the International Court of Justice, or the ICJ in The Hague. A case is being heard there brought by South Africa, arguing that Israel has violated the 1948 Genocide Convention in its treatment of Palestinian civilians during its military operation in Gaza. Well, yesterday, South Africa said that Israel has what it described as a genocidal intent against the Palestinians in Gaza, something Israel denies. I'm joined now by David Waring, an expert on UK foreign relations in the Middle East, and lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex. Good morning, David. Morning. So let's recap yesterday. Um, the, the arguments came from South Africa saying Israel has shown chilling and incontrovertible intent to commit genocide in Gaza. That's right. And um, I mean, in cases like this, um, it's, it's, as I understand it, normally the case that there's very little evidence, like direct evidence of intent. What I mean by that is explicit statements publicly available from the accused party saying we're going to commit a genocide or something along those lines. Um, and that's what a genocide convention allows for intent to be inferred from the pattern of behavior. So if you look at the pattern of violence carried out by the accused party, you may be able to infer under the genocide con convention that a genocide was intended, even if it hasn't been admitted to. And this, and what, is, and this is what the South Africans were claiming yesterday, that saying that the, the Israelis had full knowledge of how many civilians um, it is it is killing. So as a result, we may infer from that that the intent is is genocide. Well, yes, but they went a bit further than that as well, because not only did they say, look at the pattern of violence, look at the kind of violence, look at the level of devastation, look at the fact that the Israelis have quite deliberately withheld from the Gazan population 
um, the basic means of survival, food, 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 fuel, water, food, etc. But also, if you read the um, the submission from the South Africans that they laid before the court, and you read paragraphs 100 to 107, what you find over those several pages is statement after statement after statement after statement from leading Israeli politicians up to and including the president, the prime minister, uh, the defense minister, going down to senior um, military officials, making statements which add up to genocidal intent, as the South Africans argue, statements that, you know, invoking biblical scripture, genocidal passages of biblical scripture, um, statements saying that they're, that, that, that they're quite clear that there are no innocent Palestinians in Gaza, um, and or statements from civil society figures, which are, which are effectively incitement to genocide, and which the Israeli state has done nothing about because there is an obligation to prevent incitement to genocide under the convention. And so the South Africans were able to bring quite a striking body of evidence, as I say, not just about the behavior itself, not just about the violence itself, but the rhetoric coming from all these senior figures that further indicates a genocidal intent. Um, you have to remember, these Israeli politicians, they talk out of both sides of their mouths, as politicians tend to do around the world. They talk to the British media, their spokespeople talk to the British media and deny any kind of, um, you know, deny that they're attacking civilians, deny that they're doing anything other than attacking Hamas in accordance with international law. But what the South Africans have shown is that there's very different claims made to a domestic audience. So that's where Israel's vulnerable, I think. Yeah. What, what is Israel expected to say today? Because yesterday was South Africa's turn, today it's that of Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, I expect you, you, you'll hear what you, you normally hear from Israel to an international audience, which is that it was attacked on 7th of October, that it had to respond, um, that it's done so in accordance with international law, that it only attacks uh, Hamas targets, that Hamas embeds itself in the population, and so it's a degree of civilian death is inevitable, but Israel doesn't have any choice because that's what it's doing, because it has to take measures uh, to defend itself. Um, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that turns out. David Waring, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. This is an out-of-control Attorney General. She's totally out of control. These loans were all good. The banks were extremely happy with me. They still are. We built a great company. A recap on the US week in politics. And guess what? Donald Trump's in court again. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. A look now at today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Waldy, Europe correspondent at The Globe and Mail. A very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Um, I think we should 
naturally begin with the world coverage of the uh, US and UK-led attacks uh, targeting Houthi rebel um, targets last night. Um, It wasn't just the US and UK who carried this out, did it? Canada was involved as well, as were um, Australia, the Netherlands and Bahrain. Um, What's been the Canadian reporting of this? Well, we haven't had a lot of uh, reporting yet because this happened too early in Canada. But nonetheless, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions for the government uh, in Parliament today. Uh, Canada had joined this patrol force a couple of weeks ago. Now, they hadn't committed any ships to it, but they had committed some personnel. So I suspect Canada's role in this was was fairly marginal in the sense that it was probably involved with personnel as opposed to actual military hardware. But nonetheless, it puts Canada right in the forefront of this attack. And it, it does mean Canada is liable to any retaliation that, that might happen from the Houthis. And Canada's in a, in a unique position in many ways because at the last UN vote on the war in Israel, Canada opted for a ceasefire. It broke with the U.S., which was pretty pretty substantial for Canada to do. So now here's Canada joining this uh, attack on the Houthis, which, of course, will be seen as siding with Israel. So Canada's kind of playing both sides a little bit in this conflict. It's boxed itself into a corner, hasn't it? Because you also have the, the sense that it, it is jumping when the U.S. says it should. Well, that's traditionally been the complaint about Canada from from a lot of critics inside the country that the government just does whatever the U.S. says so. But in this case, it didn't. Uh, it has come out in favor of a ceasefire. Now, it qualified that in a whole bunch of different ways. So did Australia. Um, but nonetheless, that did put Canada outside the U.S. And it does mean this is kind of an interesting position to be in when you're part of a, an attack on the Houthis who see this very much as uh, something that is in alliance with Israel. Indeed. And there's, there is that sense, isn't there, that yes, the, the effect on global shipping is and will be felt by us around the world. But when you look, you, it does often feel like a war very, very far away. And, and one wonders the, the, the relevance, doesn't, doesn't one? Well, certainly that will be the case in, in a place like Canada as well, although the government does keep arguing that, yes, this does affect prices, this does affect, you know, commercial traffic, this does have an impact on Canadian consumers, but that's pretty hard for people, I think, to get their heads around when they don't see it uh, in the in the scope of inflation going up anyway. It's hard to then blame it on this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it's going to be hard to get people to really relate to what's going on. I don't think people even know who the Houthis are or how they're, what their role in all of this is, but nonetheless, it does raise concerns about a wider conflict, which can Canadians will be very aware of. Uh, let's move on to a story in the Washington Post. Uh, again, military rela- related, but it's um, there's been a report issued by the Pentagon saying that um, the military aid to Ukraine, a large amount of it, well, no one knows what happened to the money. Yeah, and I don't think this is good news for Ukraine because they're already having a tough time convincing the U.S. Congress to vote for more military aid. And this report comes right in the middle of that debate. And what it says is that about a billion dollars worth of U.S. military hardware really can't be accounted for. And that's, of course, been the complaint by conservative Republicans and conservative congressmen who say they don't want to keep giving money, uh, giving aid to Ukraine because they don't know where it's gone and they don't know if it's being spent wisely. And this report will feed into that, unfortunately, uh, for Ukraine because it says that the checks and balances on some of this equipment aren't great. Really, it's down to some people in Ukraine with some hand scanners and maybe the odd audit every now and then. But it's really raised a lot of questions about is the military aid getting there, staying there, or is it finding its way onto the black market? Probably a bit unfair of me to ask if the Pentagon doesn't know, but do we know where any of this stuff has gone? <laughs> well, I mean, the Pentagon does say, look, you have to keep in mind that this was a war zone, and certainly when the when the conflict started, the U.S. Embassy had to evacuate, and there was very little ability to do any proper checks. 
checking. However, I think as the war has gone on, people are expecting that there's a lot more counting being done on this kind of thing. The U.S. does say there are processes in place that the Ukrainians are following it and that there's no evidence that, that any of these weapons have gone onto the black market yet. But uh, sadly, it is still early days and we have seen in past conflicts where this does happen. So all of this, though, is just not good news for Ukraine. It's just not what that government needed when they're trying to force or trying to ask the U.S. Congress for more military aid. Let's move to a story um, that covers an issue here in the United Kingdom. Uh, the UK's second biggest city, Birmingham, declared bankruptcy last year and is going to try and reclaw, reclaim back some of the money or claw back some of the money by a massive council tax rise. I think it's 21%. Um, really bad if you're living in Birmingham, but the, the global impact of that and, and the, the lessons to be learned are what? I think this speaks to a wider problem, certainly in the UK anyway, but probably in a lot of cities around the world. And that is coping with, you know, a decrease in, in revenue. And Birmingham filed for bankruptcy. They had a particular situation with some outstanding liabilities, but nonetheless, Nottingham has also... They weren't paying their dinner ladies. Yes, they, they didn't pay their... They do have an outstanding issue, but nonetheless, they, they also have decreasing revenues from the central government. Nottingham has filed. The local council, the local authority association says up to 20% of local councils in the UK could face similar prospects. And I think you're seeing it in other cities. I know in Toronto, uh, where I come from, the government there, the local government there is looking at a huge increase in property tax because, again, their revenue is falling. So I think this could be a trend we're going to see not just in the UK, but around the world in Western countries anyway, where local governments are scrambling for any kind of revenue they can get, and they're going to put it on the homeowners and they're going to put it on property tax. It becomes a different issue, doesn't it? Because it then you then find councils which ordinarily have kept things in-house to the to as much to their ability will suddenly find that they will rely more and more on the private sector. And that, that's, that really does change the way that cities are run, doesn't it? Well, it does. And it also gets into big debates about how cities are funded and whether the, the, the government at the upper level should be funding more. In this case, Westminster. In Canada's case, it's the provinces. Should they be contributing more? And of course, they say, well, our, our, our funds are tight and these cities are mismanaging their money. And you get into this kind of a blame game, but ultimately the only people who pay largely are the homeowners because that's the one area where cities have almost complete taxing authority. Uh, finally, let's talk about the car rental giant Hertz. Um, 20,000 of its electric cars, it is getting rid of them because um, it's a little bit wacky races for drivers, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen an airport car park where people are trying to drive electric cars. It goes a bit bumper cars. And, and as a result, people don't like them. <laughs> and that's what Hertz has discovered. And this is interesting because it was only a couple of years ago where Hertz made this big announcement that they were going to buy 100,000 electric cars, a lot of them Teslas, because this was the way of the future. Now they're finding that most of their customers really don't want electric cars, mainly because they have difficulties figuring out the charging station they have difficulties if there's an accident and the repair costs are really high. And also what Hertz has discovered, because, of course, car rental companies turn over their fleets every couple of years, uh, the price of these things, the used market for electric vehicles, has really fallen. So they're going to get less for these cars when they do have to trade them in or they do have to resell them. So I think this is a really interesting move. And it's not a great story for the electric car market because Hertz obviously was going to be a big buyer and a big user of electric cars. Indeed. I mean, there is a real sense there that we're not there yet with electric cars. If, if Hertz is actually actively getting rid of them, there's infrastructural issues that we need to talk about. Well, there are infrastructural issues and obviously there's there's issues in terms of resale of electric cars and whether or not customers really are ready for them. Certainly there's a segment of the population that will want electric cars and the sales are still going up in countries like the US, but are they flatlining now and is are they headed for a bit of a dip? And I think that's what people are, are looking at right now. And indeed, if you want to 
um, buy a second-hand Tesla from Hertz. There's quite a few of them knocking yeah. <laughs> around. Um, finally, we do have a little bit of time to squeeze in. Um, you wanted to talk to us about how it's going to be cold in Canada. Now, I know more than one Canadian person, and I, if ever I say it's cold, they laugh at me because they say, well, I am Canadian and you don't know cold until you're Canadian. Um, but how cold is cold now? Well, cold is cold. And what I think is interesting uh, now is that in December, Western Canada in particular was enjoying balmy temperatures, record temperatures. There was El Nino. Everybody was predicting a warm winter. Well, here we are in January and temperatures are expected to drop to minus 30, even minus 50 with the wind chill in some places. Some cities are expected to break records for low temperatures this weekend. So it's it's been quite a season. Of course, it was just last summer that Western Canada had record high temperatures, pushing 35 degrees, pushing 40 degrees. So what a swing in six months. And I think it does speak to climate change, really, we have to say it, and, and that something's really going on here when, you know, you see that kind of a swing in temperatures in, in less than, well, in six months. They are extreme, but there there is the preparedness that Canada is quite well known for when it comes to cold. So I, I, I don't know at what point things really do change. Once it goes past minus 20, does it really not matter how cold it is? <laughs> Probably not, but it is dangerous. And, and yes, while Canadians more or less are prepared for it, although we like to think we are, but really we're not like anybody else. But I think it's dangerous. I think there's concerns about shelters. There's concerns about school. A lot of schools have closed. Uh, there's also all of this cold weather comes with storms, with a lot of snow and that kind of thing. So I, I yes, Canada does deal with cold winters all the time, but these kind of extreme temperatures, I think, have caught people off guard this year more so than ever. And I think it's uh, it's it's a trend that, that really doesn't bode well for the future. Do you laugh at British people when they say it's I don't. cold? Cold is cold and it's cold here and it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Paul Waldy, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is just nudging 7.34am. A quick look now at the latest news headlines. Tens of thousands of people have demonstrated in Poland against the arrest and imprisonment of two MPs. Crowds also gathered to protest against the new government's changes to state media. There are growing tensions in the country as the new pro-European Union coalition government, led by Donald Tusk, tries to undo the policies of the previous Nationalist Law and Justice Party. Russia's former president has warned that the use of any arms supplied by the US and its allies to Ukraine to carry out attacks on missile launch sites inside Russia will risk a nuclear response from Moscow. Dmitry Medvedev warned that some Ukrainian military commanders were considering hitting missile launch sites inside Russia with Western-supplied long-range missiles. And North Korea is to allow its first tourists back into the country in four years. A group from Russia is expected to visit. North Korea imposed some of the strictest border controls in the world during the spread of COVID-19 and is yet to fully reopen to foreigners. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Let's enjoy an alternative view at the day's, oh sorry, I should say the week's news. Here's Andrew Muller with what we learned. We learned this week whose side God is on in this year's US presidential election. A US presidential election to which we should probably pay extra attention in case it's the last. And on June 14th, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. We learned that from a video modestly posted on the, the internet. internet by Donald Trump himself, presumably at God's behest. 
And we learned quite a lot more. For example, that the mountainous evidence to the effect that Trump is merely a bone-idle, half-witted grifter who fluked his way into high office by appealing to the meanest instincts of his harder-of-thinking fellow citizens may have conveyed a grievously misleading impression of the man. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state. So God made Trump. We learned, because we watched the whole thing so you don't have to, that there was considerable yardage more of this entirely sane and normal, normal and sane, sane slash normal, sanely normal stuff where that came from, including this. God had to have somebody willing to go into the den of vipers, call out the fake news for their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. We did not learn of the authorial hand behind this extremely not even slightly deranged narration, as they are clearly every bit as self-effacing as their subject. But we did feel like we might have gleaned a subtle clue from the closing stanzas. And then his oldest son turns and says, Dad, let's make America great again. Dad, let's build back a country to be the envy of the world again. So God made Trump. His oldest son. Not any of his other children, of whom there are a selection quite long on quantity, if not quality, his oldest son. Speaking of whom... Oh no. We learned that the world's second worst Donald Trump is struggling somewhat with reading comprehension. We learned that Donald Trump Jr., who passes his days partly by making video clips in which our lawyers tell us we may observe that he appears animated, energetic, even exuberant, had taken up cudgels against his father's opponents on social media. We learned that Jr. was vexed by the latest release of documents pertaining to Jeffrey Epstein, late friend of far too many people who you'd reckon would know better. We learned that DTJ was especially annoyed annoyed by references in the documents to certain well-known personages and was demanding to know why nothing was being done about any of this. And we learned that Trump Jr. had somehow forgotten to mention one of the names also listed in said documents, and we will now pause for a few seconds of soothing music while you take a wild guess as to whose name it was. A hint, if you're struggling, it's a name quite similar to Donald Trump Jr. Remove the Jr. and you're getting there. Anyway, honest mistake, doubtless. Though in better news for the former and perhaps next first family of the United States, we learned that the field of candidates seeking second place in the race to be the Republican nominee for president had thinned considerably, as we learned that Chris Christie, former governor and measurable percentage of the landmass of New Jersey, was out, though not before taking a few parting swipes at the frontrunner. I have known him well for 22 years more than anybody else in this race. 
has known him. And I can promise you this, if you put him back behind the desk in the Oval Office and a choice comes and a decision is needed to be made as to whether he puts himself first or he puts you first, how much more evidence do you need that he will pick himself? While it might have been nice to have heard more of this sort of thing back in 2016 and 2020, as opposed to the unctuous endorsements of Trump that Christie then vouchsafed, a good speech, in fairness, from which we learned very much not for the first time that your best chance of hearing unvarnished reality from politicians is that precise moment at which they abandon any hope of getting your vote. And to be clear, we for one satirical news monologue believe this wretched state of affairs to be as much a reflection of the fatuous desire of voters to hear what they wish to, as of the cynical willingness of politicians to serve it up. I would rather lose by telling the truth than lie in order to win. We learned, basically and depressingly, that those appear to be the options. Can we possibly now have a tune from early 90s Camden Town shoegaze also runs Moose? You know what? It's held up okay. Has Moose's 1992 debut album XYZ? Can we have some general muttered agreement? Yeah. Because we learned that far, far too many Canadians are letting Moose lick their cars. Can we get, I don't know, a clip of whatever noise moose make, interspersed with slurping? It's like we're there, in Canada, having our car licked by a moose. We learn that the moose have acquired a taste for the road salt laid down on Canadian roads to prevent them from turning into ice rinks and that characteristically obliging Canadians are stopping to allow the sodium chloride-enjoying antler havers to quaff their tyres clean. But we learned that this is not to be encouraged. We learned that Parks Canada had yet again been compelled to issue its annual plea not to indulge the savoury-seeking ungulates. Officers in Jasper National Park in Alberta have put up signs asking motorists to avoid allowing moose to lick the salt off their cars. Moose find it hard to resist, the salt that ends up on vehicles after it's being spread on winter roads. And many people visiting the park stop on the side of the road to check out the moose. But officials warn that they will become habituated with being around cars. We learned that, essentially, Canadian motorists have not... Oh, no. ...heard the message. Boo. And we know moose, as distinct from most other deer species, are not herd animals. Shut up. We don't care. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. The time here is 7.43am. Uh, let's head to Greece now because there are reports that Greece is planning an IPO of the country's biggest airport, Athens International. They've suggested the government wants to divest a 30% stake owned by the country's privatisation agency, the Hellenic Republic Asset Development Fund, as early as next month. Well, Paul Charles is the CEO of the luxury travel PR firm, the PC Agency. A very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Emma. So why is Athens trying to sell off um, the airport right now? It, it had a go a couple of years ago, didn't it? But the pandemic got in the way. 
Yes, they are on a roll. This is one of the most successful and popular airports in Europe. It's one of the the top 20 airports in Europe. It handled some 28 million passengers last year, which was a rapid rise on the year before, up some 25%. And the Greek government obviously committed to selling off assets as part of its various bailouts a few years ago when it was in turmoil financially. And now it feels it's the right time. The airport's doing well. There are more airlines trying to fly into and out of Athens airport. And they feel this is a moment they can get maximum dollars for their stake. And they're looking to sell off something like 20 to 30 percent of the airport. How common is this in aviation for a, for a, for a nation to sell off its, its sort of crown jewel um, airport aviation hub? Well, it's becoming more frequent. Uh, we saw at the highest level Heathrow recently, of course, uh, look to change hands from Ferrovial selling its stake in Heathrow and potential buyers, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've seen it in other parts of the world where governments are reducing their stakes uh, or combining with the private sector to give the private sector more majority stakes in their airports. And if you look at the longer term trends, you can see why. I mean, Athens Airport, built in 2001, built ahead of the Athens Olympics in 2004. Back then, it was handling 12 million passengers. Now it's handling 28 million a year. So just in the last 20 or so years, you've seen the sort of rise that a typical and successful airport can achieve. So for investors, that makes it a long-term good bet, even if you're only holding a successful stake for 10 years or so. And how will travellers see any difference? Well, that's the challenge. It's a really good question. When you're handling 28 million passengers versus uh, 12 million, it's a very different sort of airport. Now, Athens planned for handling some 20 million or so by now, but it's gone way beyond its forecast. I think we're going to see Athens Airport itself expand its current two terminals to probably four over the next five years. The wider issue, of course, when an airport expands like that is how does the wider destination cope with the expansion in visitors and tourists? And for Greece itself, which is becoming more popular, especially since COVID, that's going to be the big challenge. Can the islands around Athens cope? Can the ferry infrastructure cope? And can the Greek mainland itself cope with greater demands from more higher paying tourists coming into the area? Paul Charles, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. appearances, presidential race dropouts, Trump, Trump and more Donald Trump. Lots has happened in US politics this week, so we thought it might be a good idea to bring ourselves up to speed after Andrew Muller had given us his take a little bit earlier on today's programme. To take possibly a more serious view, Natasha Lindstedt is Professor of Government at the University of Essex and she joins me now. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning. So we do have to mention Donald Trump because his voice is getting louder and he was back in court this week. That's right. Uh, He's been incredibly busy. He was just in Iowa doing some sort of town hall, avoiding, of course, the last Republican debate. Um, But he's facing four pending criminal cases and, of course, this uh, civil case 
uh, and he's been getting into it, uh, making all kinds of uh, uh, outbursts uh, against the the judge, uh, against the the district attorney in New York. Um, who is seeking $370 million in fines and to basically bar Trump from the New York real estate uh, industry. Uh, so he's making headlines. And in, from his perspective, I don't think he really cares what kind of headlines he makes. He just likes to dominate the news cycle. Indeed, and lashing out at the attorney general. I mean, what good does that do for him, given the fact that, as you said, you know, just to be in the public eye is something which is essential? Uh, it doesn't do him any good at all. And I'm sure he's has to be one of the worst clients for for any attorney trying to defend him. He just can't help himself. And I think he's really just playing to his base uh, as he makes these types of outbursts, as he defends himself, as he tries to portray himself as strong uh, and uh, willing to able to withstand anything and resilient. He gains more uh, campaign funds. He is able to generate all kinds of revenues for his campaign because people are are feeling like he's this huge victim and you've had um, Republicans, uh, Republican senators on TV crying because they felt that he has been uh, attacked so many times and been a a victim of the justice system. So he uses all these outbursts and uh, these court cases to bring in more money for his campaign. Uh, Let's take a final look at Chris Christie because he, he left the scene not without lobbing a few grenades. That's true. So he has been one of the strongest critics of Trump and really the only Republican candidate that has truly gone after Trump again and again and made it clear that he's just morally unfit to be president. Uh, and recently he just dropped out of the race knowing he, he, he didn't have enough support. But in the state of New Hampshire, which is a critical state in the primary cycle, he did have 12 percent of support. Uh, and, and that support could go to Nikki Haley, who had about 32 percent compared to Trump's 39 percent. But the problem was he was caught on a hot mic saying basically that that she was going to get smoked in the election and that she essentially has no chance. Uh, And it would have been more helpful, I think, if he said, you know, she does have a chance if I drop out and I'm going to lend all my support to her. But he didn't necessarily do that. uh, So there's going to be a lot of questions as to where his supporters are going to go. Indeed, I mean, what kind of mark does Chris Christie leave on the political scene, given, as you say, he he delivered that sort of slightly Shakespearean um, sort of plague on all your houses as he left as he left the, the stage? Right. Yeah. He he left with a bang, you should, you could say. Uh, his mark is interesting. It's a bit of a mixed record because I think for a lot of people, they felt that he was basically a lackey to Donald Trump when Donald Trump liked him. And then as soon as he fell out of favor with Donald Trump, then he decided to go after him. So he lacks credibility and credibility on, on other scandals that have plagued his term as governor. Uh, but when he has been criticizing Trump and pointing out all of the different uh, issues and moral problems that there are with Trump criminal and, uh, you know, cases and so forth, he's been pretty articulate. And I think he's resonated with a lot of moderate Republicans. So it's a bit of a, a mixed bag, I would say. And for those left taking on Donald Trump, I mean, looking at the the, the debate this week with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, neither really won or what, what was the verdict on that? Oh, the only one that won was Trump because they just refused to go after him. I mean, they sort of attacked one another for reasons I don't know, because they're not really threatened by one another. I mean, the biggest threat to them winning the nomination is, of course, Donald Trump. And they they seem completely cowardly. They needed to 
really pinpoint and make the case for why they are a better candidate than Donald Trump, not each other. And they failed to do so. And instead, Trump was in a town hall with, you know, adoring fans and didn't have to face many questions. Uh, so, you know, they criticized him a little bit for not showing up to the debate. Essentially, he ended up winning it. Natasha Linster, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's talk theatre now with a New York theatre critic, Matt Wolf, theatre critic at the International New York Times, who's been in New York and has a playbill. I know, I love these playbills. And they're free. Not much in New York is free. These are. So how many did you take? Uh, (laughs) Well, I saw 11 shows and at each one I took three. And that's why you brought the world's biggest cup of coffee that I've ever seen. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the man could have a bath in it. Brilliant. I know. It's quite early here in the UK, but that's that's going <laughs> some. stop us. Yes, no, you'll be going right till tea time with that. <laughs> right. Bring us your playbills, Matt Wolf, your, your gifts from the f- gifts from far away. Well, lots of Stephen Sondheim, of mm, course, good. of whom I'm a great fan. Uh, he died uh, just over two years ago, age 91. And what's interesting is the, the question during his life was, you know, great talent, great genius, but did the audience really go to his shows or was he just kind of a critic's darling? Now he's no longer living. And in a kind of perverse twist of fate, he's got two of the biggest successes on Broadway and a major success esteem off Broadway. Uh, on Broadway, he's uh, got Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford and Sweeney Todd. That opened last spring. But more recently is a brilliant revival. I'm now waving the playbill in front of Emma of uh, a revival. Emma, Emma is now asking for the playbill to have a look at it. Thank <laughs> it's, you. Uh, Here it's a playbill. show called Merrily We Roll Along that was first seen on Broadway in 1981, where, in fact, I saw it. It was a quick flop after two weeks. And now this production is grossing almost $2 million a week, and ticket prices are, you know, eight dollars $900 for absolute best premium seats. So to go from cataclysmic failure to huge success in 40-odd years is is rather amazing, uh, particularly because the show itself is is very bleak, but it's beautifully performed in this production by a cast headed by Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff, and Lindsay Mendez, and directed by Britain's own Maria Friedman. This is a production that began at the Minio Chocolate Factory in London in 2015, but obviously it's had lots of changes along the way. So two big British players in in, yeah, yeah. in, in this production. Yeah. And one, I mean, one does wonder what's taken it so long to, to be recognised. Well, I think it, it's one thing, it's a reverse chronology show. Uh, the story is told backwards, like with Pinter's play Betrayal, which I'm sure was one of Sondheim's influences. And I think in 1981, people just thought, what? And now perhaps audiences are a bit more up for whatever. And speaking of uh, for whatever, uh, the other Sondheim uh, show off-Broadway, this is his new one called Here We Are. We're swapping playbills. And we're swapping playbills. And this is a very interesting one, Emma, because he was bedeviled by this show in the last years of his life. I did have the good fortune to interview him a bit uh, in later years. And he, I would always say, so how is this new show going? You say, oh, don't ask. And then he died without the show having been finished. So this is by definition an unfinished Sondheim musical. And his collaboration operator David Ives, who is very much alive, uh, sort of took, but he's not a composer, he took the cudgel and he has finished the narrative of it, so it does have closure in terms of the the storytelling, but sometimes music stops. How have they managed to do that then? Does it just stop? 
they fold it into the narrative. It works with the narrative because it's based on two uh, films by Luis Buñuel, the Spanish director, uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Exterminating Angel. And it gets darker and more metaphysical as it goes on. And there's a place where sort of the buoyancy and bounce of music itself uh, don't work anymore. You need something uh, a bit more finite. And so the music leaves off and language takes over. I wonder there's a more, I wonder if you could ask me this more general question now. I mean, we're looking at a resurgence yeah, in yeah. Sondheim. Um, we've just seen my come out. Yeah. The, the the Bernstein yeah. uh, but not necessarily biopic yeah. but Bernstein yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when you watch Bi- Maestro and when you see the resurgence of Sondheim one wonders slightly where brilliant 20th century American music has disappeared off to for the last few decades. Well, that's a very interesting question. There's a thing about Sondheim's legacy and is it sort of disappearing down a rabbit hole? There are plenty of composers. There's a, uh, not that young anymore, composer Michael John LaCusa, who's sort of school of Sondheim. He had a show on in New York when I was there, actually, called The Gardens of Anuncia. And he's very, very good. But none of these kind of acolytes, as as it were, are really finding an audience. And I don't know that they will ever have the sweet that Sondheim had. I mean, his career will not be uh, repeated, certainly in my lifetime. I and mean, could you wonder whether what it is perhaps about the sound, which is slightly off-putting, because both Sondheim and Bernstein have Bernstein had sort of real swagger to their to their sounds, and it was a very American yeah. sound. Yeah. Um, incredibly popular at the time, and it it just seems that where, where one wonders where that where what why that rabbit hole opened up. Well, you know, you think of a song like "Sun in the Clouds" from Little Night Music, which, by the way, is an earlier Sondheim show, also based on a movie, Ingmar Bergman smells of a summer night. So he does have form when it comes to adapting uh, shows from pre-existing European films. But uh, those that was a time when musicals uh, gave rise to popular music. That doesn't really happen anymore. Now it works the other way around. You take Abba and you put it in a musical. You take Neil Diamond and you put it in a musical. The musical isn't feeding the airwaves. It's the other way. Uh, finally, we have uh, a scant minute in which you usually bring us an absolute turkey to enjoy. Uh, what's, what's Broadway's problem this week? Uh, well, ticket prices are astronomically high, but that's, I don't know if that's a problem, it's just an issue. Uh, the worst show I saw by far was an imitation Tom Stoppard play by uh, an American writer called Joshua Harmon called A Prayer for the French Republic. And all I can say is some of this writer's previous plays have come to London, this one won't. It's set between the Second World War and uh 2016 France, uh, a family who can't decide whether or not they want to leave France for Israel. I just wanted to leave the theatre. Oh, Matt. But the other stuff's good. The other stuff was very good. Thank you very much indeed for joining me in the studio on today's Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Vincent McAvinney, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwer and our studio manager was uh, Steph Chungu with editing assistance from Jack Dewars. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing will be live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. Join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Oh,